Hey, how's it going, everybody? You're listening to another episode of the Super Mercado Brothers Video Game Music Podcast. Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is the podcast where we share and discuss the very best in video game music. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm his brother, Will Brueggemann. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about collaborations in video game music. What we mean by this is throughout the history of video games, um, really a lot of the soundtracks that we really know and love have had multiple composers work on them. And that's something interesting when we think about, you know, film and TV. Oftentimes, there aren't multiple composers. With TV, a little bit more, because sometimes mm-hmm. there'll be different people working on different episodes. But with games, it's really one of the only examples I can think of were when uh, the creator of the score throughout the entire project might not just be one person. You know, in some cases today, we have upwards of seven or eight people who or worked on more. soundtracks. Or even more, yeah. And, and what's, what's kind of cool about today's episode is it's pretty much just an excuse to play some of the best, most classic video game music ever that happens to be composed by multiple multiple composers. There's so many classic soundtracks that, you know, off the bat, I'm sure you guys could think of, um, that was a collaborative soundtrack. And there is something cool about multiple people coming together uh, for the greater good, you know, for just trying to evoke one style or one feel in a soundtrack. And it's kind of the selfless thing where it's not really about, ooh, I wanted to contribute this style to the soundtrack. It's just like, I want to fit the vibe and I want it to be cohesive. Well, exactly. And I think it's something that we're obviously going to talk about a lot today is the ways in which we can sort of only speculate how these people worked together. Because at the end of the day, all we get for the most part is the end product. Sometimes we do get individual crediting. For example, on Super Metroid, Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, it has on the SPC file, you know, who compose each track in the game exactly Um, but i think the more important thing to touch on is why all the tracks in that game are so incredibly cohesive and so i think that's sort of more what we're going to talk about a lot of we're going to be talking about the games today not just the tracks that we're playing so for example even though we are playing a super metroid track we're going to talk about the successful collaboration of kenji and monaco and that's why we're playing a lot of tracks from games that we've already discussed and that you guys should be fairly familiar with because we we want to sort of talk about the soundtracks as a whole and sort of how these composers would create a unified sound. So it's not just going to be track specific. We're really going to be talking about the whole thing. And I feel like Carl and I do have a little bit of experience in this department because for most of the video game music that we've done, it has been a collaborative effort. For and sure. Carl and I have explored uh, many different avenues of collaborating in music together. So hopefully that could potentially bring some sort of insight into this topic, but I'm really excited. It's interesting. Some of the tracks today we know who composed, some of them we have no idea. So it's fun to and have that's, that variety. that's cool too, yeah. Yeah, so, so what you guys heard playing in with was really the first thing I thought about, a quintessential example of collaborations. One of the longest lists of composers I've ever seen, that is of course Sonic 3 and Knuckles. Obviously two different games, which pretty much was one project all the music was composed at one time and just for old time's sake I'm going to read the entire current list of composers that worked you know this has changed a lot over the years people's names have been added and taken away so here's the list of people that worked on Sonic 3 and Knuckles for the Genesis Brad Buxer, Chiriko Jones, Michael Jackson, Sachio Ogawa, Masaru Setsumaru, Yoshiaki Kashima, Tatsuyuki Maeda, Tamanori Sawada, Masayuki Nagao, Jun Senoue, Miyoko Takeoka, and Masanori Hikichi. (laughs) 
Oh my goodness, that's an incredibly long list there. Uh, and obviously, you actually can add to that Howard Drosen uh, composed the title of Sonic and Knuckles, and that's pretty much it. Well, and it's pretty crazy that in the midst of all those names, we heard Michael Jackson. Michael like, Jackson, what? Yeah. If you would have showed this to any kid in the 90s, they would have lost their yeah. shit. So, <laughs> so the fact that Michael Jackson did this. Absolutely. So what you guys heard was the bonus stage one pinball machine. And that, I believe, uh, is only played in the Knuckles, either when you, when you lock on Knuckles or when you just play Sonic and Knuckles. So in the original Sonic... Sonic 3, all they had was the gumball st- uh, theme for bonus The ragtime one, yeah. Exactly. So, so this is a cool theme as well. Let's get things rolling here. We're going to start off with another uh, kind of classic collaborative soundtrack from the 16-bit era. This is Mega Man X for the Super NES. Love it. Obviously, Capcom here. We're going to play, you know, for the most part today, we're trying to play tracks we haven't played before. This is a track called Icy Penguigo Stage. And the list of composers here is Setsuyo Yamamoto. Makado Tamazawa, Yuki Awai, Yuko Takahara, and Tashihiko Horiyama. You know, I think this I think this might be a, a bad translation because I've I've actually played Mega Man X and I remember the the uh the boss's name was Chill Penguin. Okay. So I think this must just be a translate because yeah. Icy Penguigo, that's just sort of what yeah, you yeah. can infer from that. I kinda like it though. Icy Penguigo stage. Here we go. You're listening to Icy Penguigo Stage (laughs) from Mega Man X for the Super NES composed by a lot of talented Capcom composers. This is really one of the most popular, one of the most well-loved Mega Man soundtracks, definitely in the 16-bit era. This is a cool track that, um, you know, I don't think I've heard this track for a long time. I think the last time I really kind of delved into this soundtrack was way back when we did uh, our first Mega Man episode in Season 1. But yeah, this is a cool track. Yeah, Carl, how would you describe this soundtrack musically? I, I think that's a good place to start for a lot of this is just as a listener, how do you think this kind of evokes uh, Mega Man and what's different about it from what we've heard before? Because most of the NES games only really had one composer for the most part. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's kind of surprising that it's musically not that different from the NES Mega Man series. I mean, you have I a lot of really... I think that was really... a very important choice on their part. Absolutely. I think what they really are doing is, in my opinion, just cranking everything up a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So the rock influence is just a little bit stronger and a little bit more apparent. Obviously, it helps that they're able to have, you know rock guitar samples and drums and bass yeah. and whatnot but if you just talk about you know the music it, it's not so different than something like Mega Man 2 I don't think uh, the melodies are quite as strong but I definitely think there's a lot of just classic riffs and in general yeah, there's it's a really good background music. music 
Yeah, and it's it's I think it's a little bit more accurate to rock, not just having the sounds, but just I think it is a little bit more kind of hardcore in a sense. I mean, mm-hmm. not really, but compared to a lot of the NES stuff, I mean, for example, like when we would play the Mega Man 2 stuff, sometimes that almost had more of a Latin influence. I think it is hardcore for like 1990 or 91, yeah. whenever this came out. This blew people away. I know this was a very revolutionary you know, soundtrack. Something that I've noticed about a lot of Capcom SNES music, and I think you could say this about the Super Nintendo in general when looking at uh, different companies, is mm-hmm. that they each sort of have their own sounds and samples. Like, to me, a lot of this brass and those snare sounds sound identical to the stuff that you hear in versions of Street Fighter for the Super yeah. Nintendo. So I think it's interesting how, you know, Konami has its sound, Capcom has its sounds. The main sort of in-house Nintendo music of the Super Nintendo all used very similar samples. So I think that's something well, kind of yeah. interesting. That's an interesting point that you talked about Street Fighter, because if I'm not mistaken, Mega Man X is one of the games that's credited, I think, to Elf Leela, which is always confusing because obviously Elf Leela is just like a, a conglomerate of a lot of different Capcom composers. Mm-hmm. But it's possible that um, when it came to implementation, maybe some of the same people were working on implementation of some of those Elf Leela games. For yeah, I feel like if I'm being, if I'm being uh, broad in general, I would say that uh, whoever implemented a lot of these Capcom things was more concerned with like cool instruments and less mm-hmm. about intonation because they were probably <laughs> making their own samples, but just the result out of a lot of those guitars sort mm-hmm. of really kind of not quite in tune and definitely in Street Fighter as well. It's interesting a lot how dissonance. Mega Man X is obviously a very successful soundtrack and I think it was a very successful collaboration for all these composers to come together and to really decide on a sound. However, what I think is interesting is Yuki Y is here you see her name on this first game but she has a solo effort for Mega Man X2 it's only Yuki Y and in my opinion in every way that was just um, more of a success I think it sounded a little bit clearer the samples were better I think the music is a little better so it's interesting how in my opinion uh, it doesn't necessarily mean just because you have like six really great people it's not going to be six times as good that is true you know it's interesting it's good to pair that right next to Sonic 3 because I think Sonic 3 is an example where what made that soundtrack good was all the incredible talent that went into it and everyone seemed to be very passionate about it um but this may be an example you know it it may be too many cooks in the kitchen yeah and and, and feel free to people feel free to disagree with me i know people love Mega Man x yeah Uh, i i prefer x2 but anyway let's move on here well and x3 i think is also great oh it's so good yeah we're gonna move on to pokemon gold and silver this was, I believe, the second game in the series, and this was composed by Junichi Masuda and Go Ichinos. Now, that's just a classic team. I really <laughs> wanted to play Pokemon Track, because a lot of today, we're going to be focusing on the classic collaborative teams in video game music, and that's absolutely. one of the just absolute classics. Go Ichinos and Junichi Masuda did so much well, yeah, good work I really, together. It's funny, when we looked at a series like uh, Fire Emblem, having one composer... on the games was like very surprising and kind of sweet but what i feel like is more common is in these big series when you have you know two or three people that kind of did all the soundtracks together i know kirby is sort of a similar thing absolutely so uh so yeah let's play a track we haven't played on the podcast this is route two from gold and silver
That's beautiful. What a pretty track. You guys are listening to Pokemon Gold and Silver, and the track is Route 2, composed by Jinichi Masuda and Go Ichinos. This came out for the Game Boy. I believe it was the second game in the series. Yeah, what a classic collaborative group. Really did a great job. For a lot of this series, um, I don't think it's known who did which track. It might mm-hmm. be like later on like for the DS stuff, but for this game, I'm not aware of crediting um, on particular tracks. But um, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts, Will? Because I don't know this series well enough and these composers well enough to know, you know, what's the difference compositionally between Go Ichinos and Jinichi Masuda. But what are oh, your yeah, thoughts on this whole no. series? My, my thoughts are that as far as Nintendo soundtracks go, I think I don't really think it can hold a candle to, you know, Mario and Zelda and Metroid to some degree. Um, but I really think it's up there. It's just because Nintendo music has such a great tradition and is mm-hmm. so good that I would say that. But it really, I, I feel like they're capturing a lot of things that make different franchise soundtracks good. You know, there's certain things in here that remind me a little bit of Hirokazu Tanaka. And obviously oh, yeah. certain um, chord moves that remind me of, you know, a Koji Kondo thing. I think there's a lot of kind of Zelda influence. Didn't as far Steven as the tell music. us that Hirokazu Tanaka composed a mega... Uh, Pokemon track? Exactly. I think he composed the... Um, it was some the, main theme of some It was anime. the main theme of like the TV show or something. The, the in Japanese Japan. version or something, yeah. Yeah, and they th- I think they sequenced it in, in one of the games for Game Boy Color or something. But yeah, yeah. no, that's a really pretty track. Uh, Absolutely. It's very beautiful music, you know, kind of mm-hmm. a lot of those little chromatic voices and that kind of descending chord structure is very kind of tugs at your heartstrings. And that it just feels like Nintendo, I think, is the biggest yeah. thing. Just that sense of magic, much like how Disney has their own sort of landscape when you hear something wondrous and uplifting. Oh, that sounds like Disney. I think Nintendo sort of mm-hmm. has a similar thing. I would say it's a little bit more about nostalgia for them. Yeah, and absolutely, guys. I'm sure there are uh, collaborative composers and soundtracks that we forgot today. We're, we're well aware of that. There's so much to do. We just tried to pick, you know, some of our favorites, some of we consider the most classic teams, and just, you know, a really solid playlist. So let's move on here. You know, obviously, it comes no surprise we're going to play a LucasArts track, right? <laughs> One of the most successful collaborative teams in video game music. This is Michael Land, Clint Bajakian, and Peter McConnell. We call them the dream team. <laughs> so, I mean, so. it would be just an absolute disservice on today's episode to not play a dream team track right so uh you know we've done so much from monkey island we've done so much from sam and max let's play a track from day of the tentacle and we've talked a lot about those uh collaborations i think day of the tentacle is something i'm more kind of interested in because we never really touched on it Mm -hmm. in our interviews so let's play a track on from day of the tentacle this is um a track that is one of my favorites of the soundtrack it's nurse edna here we go Thank you. 
You're listening to Nurse Edna from Day of the Tentacle. It came out for the PC. Um, you're listening to more of a, a modern version, not the Sound Blaster. It's either like a Roland or a Sound Canvas-ish type of version. I don't know how authentic this is. Um, some sort of general MIDI kind of sound here. It's composed by most likely Clint Bajakian or Peter McConnell. I know Clint did the bulk of the score, um, so... I have a feeling it, this is probably him, but it's possible it's Peter. It does not sound like Mike at all, yeah. does it? Well, I, the reason why I say I think it could be Peter is because it actually reminds me a lot of Psychonauts. I feel like they're both drawing from similar influences, right. and obviously there's such a kind of like Danny Elfman, 1980s, Beetlejuicey kind of sound to it. And I think that's definitely intentional. Oh, absolutely. Now, if if someone's listening to this podcast who is not familiar with the Dream Team or any of these LucasArts scores, I guess the one thing I want to say to summarize their relationship and their um, kind of partnership, these three guys, uh, for the scores they did, is the way they were able to come together and make music that was so funny and elevated the humor of the games, but fit every single moment so well. There are moments... Well, it's very unique. Yeah, there are moments of beauty in, in subtlety and obviously moments of humor, moments of seriousness, and they're always able to match it in a way that you just didn't hear at this time in other games. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true as far as it being unique. Um, I, I think especially it's true because when we look at a lot of game music at the time, we're mostly talking about console music. And a lot of that is a little bit more mm -hmm. plucky and just its structure in the game is a little bit more simple and looped based where, you know, these LucasArts composers, they were sort of pioneers of how you could incorporate music into games. So they were drawing more influences, yeah. I feel like, on jazz and honestly, like film score techniques and different short cues to score sort of a moment or a, yeah. an event rather than just like an underlying theme for a level. And one thing I want to touch on as far as the collaborative piece, because uh, it relates to today's episode, is one thing I remember Peter mentioning is how closely these three gentlemen worked together. They would toss themes back and forth. Peter said there was even a time where he didn't remember if he did the B section or if Mike did the B section of a song. It was just always tossed back and forth. And they had this um, kind of combined level uh like seal of quality where sometimes someone would come with a track and be like, you know, that's just not good enough, you know, back to the drawing board. And all three of them, what it, what it did is I think it kind of upped the quality as opposed to if it was just one of them working on those right. scores, which is, you know, a common tale today, I would say. So I think now it's time to move on to another SNES game. And I've been so into this. I don't know if you guys saw my tweet uh, not too long ago, but I've been so into the soundtrack this week. I forgot how great it is. Obviously, I'm familiar with it. I've listened to it a lot. But for some reason, I just, I don't know, have an increased appreciation. I look forward to doing a spotlight on this. This is Breath of Fire for the Super NES, um, composed by Yasuaki Fujita, Mary Yamaguchi, Mine Fuji, and Yoko Shimomura. Let's play a really pretty simple piece called Golden City Aria.
What a pretty song. You guys are listening to Golden City Aurea from Breath of Fire. Uh, Will uh, believes this could potentially be a Yoko Just sort of an instinct thing, but I know yeah. that... Yeah, I mean, I know she only did a very small number of tracks for this game, uh, and these are all really talented composers, but but any in any case, um, another really successful Capcom collaborative soundtrack for the SNES. You know, really, when I was thinking about this playlist for this episode, in some ways, I could have done only Capcom <laughs> soundtracks, and it would have been stellar. I mean, some of the best collaborations I can think of um, happen to be Capcom. Right. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think this track is really beautiful. It's kind of a, a a bold melody because it's so almost blatantly Baroque or classical. How about that retard at the very end? That's, That's really, really cool. nice. But just that rhythm, you know, it's, it's so funny. Marty and I were just having a conversation a little while ago about how rhythms like this aren't really used in modern music. Just sort of the da-da, 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 just having, it's almost like, it's like a classical music version of, being swung just having that really late 16th note offbeat um so i i think it is kind of a bold choice having that for the melody because it definitely evokes a very specific era um but i really love it and it's a very sort of it's a melody where you have a little nugget and then you kind of bring that little idea or motif down a little bit it, it it's just a it's a great melody um but it is it's kind of a bold statement because immediately you know it has to be judged on the level of all those great mm. melodies absolutely so now uh it kind of makes sense to switch gears we're moving from capcom to konami two legendary companies that did some of the best collaborating in video game music so we're going to move back to the nes to a soundtrack we played a few weeks back in our credits three episode we're moving back to gradius 2 uh, a personal favorite of mine. This is really cool because the arcade version was also collaborative, but by a completely different group of composers. The NES version, also collaborative, I think better, was by these two composers. We have Hidenori Miyazawa and Yuki Morimoto. You'll recognize those names from Castlevania III. A lot of similar compositional style in this era from those two composers. Let's play a really cool track called Overheat Stage 6 from Gradius II. Such a rocking track. You guys are listening to Overheat, Stage 6, from Gradius 2 for the NES, composed by Hadanori Miyazawa and Yuki Morimoto. Man, this is such a amazing soundtrack. This is my favorite Gradius soundtrack. I don't know, Will, if you have a particular favorite in the series. Um, but yeah, I just I think every track is so rocking. I, I listen to this a lot, actually, at work. It's one of my go-to soundtracks I listen to on that Noises app. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just have so much fun. This, this really helps me in my workday. Yeah, this is a, a great one. 
I think a common, really good technique for rocking 8-bit music is the do-de-do-de-do-de in the bass. Um, it's yeah. just it has so much energy, and it just it's something you can't ignore. It's really it's the opposite <laughs> of modern face. video game music where it needs to be subtle and kind of out of the way. This is something where it's like it's impossible. Now it's trying to give you these almost like dance beats just to really amp you yeah. up. And I kind of miss that. Such a, a great bit. example of old school video game music. If yeah. someone isn't familiar with it, um, one thing I love in this piece, which for some reason seems pretty unique to me, is the durin durin durin. Those like really fast arpeggios. They seem I don't know. I haven't heard that a lot. Well, it's one of those things. It's like it doesn't sound like that would be really playable by an instrumentalist, at least not with that level of clarity. So it's almost like, Mm -hmm. you know, banking it on these uh, digital sounds, which is I really like when composers of that era had the confidence. But I'm really excited to move on to our next track. This is a soundtrack that I've been listening to a lot lately. Uh, I'm, of course, talking about Destiny. This is a brand new game. It just came out... um, And what I'm so excited about is this is the first time that Paul McCartney has ever worked on a video game. And I never thought he would work on a video game. So this is just uh, so crazy for me. It's 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 absolutely important that we play a track from Destiny on today's episode. It would be an absolute disservice. You know, it's so timely. This game just came out. Uh, you know, you guys know probably about some of the controversy with uh, Marty O'Donnell being fired from Bungie after the score was completed. But this is a great, successful collaboration. Now, even if we're not talking about Paul, we had to play a Marty O'Donnell and Michael Salvatore track because yeah. such a great collaborative team for the whole Halo well, series. And but it was so luckily, fitting. It was so fitting that we're doing this episode now because I've Mm -hmm. actually just been really getting into their music lately and been watching interviews and reading stuff about the way that those two work together. Just a little background, Marty O'Donnell... He went to. He has his masters in composition, so he has sort of a by the book approach, or that's sort of his perspective. But Michael Salvatore is completely unschooled as far as music, and he just has sort of a rock energy. But what was interesting that they were talking about is that um, they sort of combine those energies into the soundtrack, but they Mm -hmm. don't necessarily. exclude each other to only occupy those territories for example sometimes there might be a more rocking track that's marty or a more orchestral one that's michael but what's cool is in this game it also adds in some paul mccartney (laughs) melodies and ideas so it's crazy and it's marty was saying it's really hard to, to tell for most people is this a paul idea is this a marty idea or a mike idea so that's cool let's play a track called music of the spheres the union battle version from destiny
This is awesome. We're listening to Music of the Spheres, The Union from Destiny, composed by potentially Marty O'Donnell, Michael Slavatori, or Paul McCartney, or a combination of the three. <laughs> we really don't have any crediting um, information out, especially surrounding the controversy. And who of knows O'Donnell's if we firing. ever will? Yeah. Who knows if this soundtrack will ever be released? It's cool. That. It reminds it's, me it's of a crazy. Sonic Three thing, where there might always be this sort of lore behind who did what, yeah. and having such a big name as just a composer. Because when I mean, I was like everybody else. I recently just found out about Paul McCartney's influence like just a matter of months ago but apparently Mm -hmm. he's been working on the score with the other two since 2010 so it sounds like they've really heavily collaborated together in addition to the song that Paul McCartney wrote for the end credits absolutely so now guys uh, we're going to really change gears here and we're going to play a track from a recent entry in the Paper Mario series Paper Mario Sticker Star. I like, you made it three- sound like we were just listening to a Paper Mario track, and this is a more recent entry. Yeah, this is a recent entry. <laughs> that, was a, yeah, that was an NES Paper Mario track. Yeah. No, um, this is Paper Mario Sticker Star for the 3DS, composed by a pretty successful collaborative team from Intelligent Systems. Ooh. This is Naoko Mitomi and Chika Sigagawa. They do pretty much all the modern Paper Mario. They did Super Paper well, Mario. They do a you lot know, of I imagine games. then they probably did Pushmo, Pushmo World, yeah. and all those, because I really wanted to play a track from Pushmo World for the last uh, show and tell, but I wasn't able to find clean rips of it or mm-hmm. crediting for the composers, which was unfortunate. But anyway, let's play a track. This is a really cool soundtrack. There's some cool jazz influence, a really cool combination of some real performance, and just pretty nice sounds, uh, you know, for a Paper Mario game. This is a track called The Enigma Mansion Unhaunted. Here we go. That's a cool track. You get some harpsichord, some classical influence. You're listening to the Enigma Mansion Unhaunted from Paper Mario Sticker Star for the 3DS, composed by Naoke Matome and Chika Sikagawa. Um, they work for, or I don't know if they work for, but they always do the music for Intelligent Systems games, and obviously that's kind of a subsidiary of Nintendo. Hey, dude, I I have an idea. Okay. I think that the reason why this track sounds so kind of classical and uses the harpsichord is I think this is a version of another track because it's called Unhaunted. So I yes, could imagine this theme being contorted and really creepy and like haunted sounding. It sounds like there's like a melody like that, but put over more major chords and with a little bit more restraint for some of that. That's you my know, theory. You know, Will, you're so crazy, but you you might be right. No, I, I'm pretty sure you are right. <laughs> I, I did check the soundtrack thought. out. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. What gave it away? Was it Unhaunted? Is that what gave it away for you? <laughs> I, I think so. It's just my brilliant intuition and the fact that it's spelled out. But 
Yeah, have have you um kind of dove into the soundtrack at all yet or not? I haven't. I never played the game because I heard it was just sort of mediocre. But I loved um the previous uh, soundtrack and game Super mm-hmm. Paper Mario. Absolutely thought it was wonderful. So I mean, I, I imagine that the music would be good. I just haven't really listened to the soundtrack yet. Fair enough. Well, now guys, we're gonna go back in time to the Sunsoft era. Uh, I mean, I guess the heyday of Sunsoft, you know, <laughs> for the NES. Yeah, right? I don't think any Sunsoft games were popular enough to really <laughs> um, elicit their own era. Right. But musically, this is definitely the, the cream of the crop here. Sunsoft were doing some of the most creative things in the 8-bit world. This is Batman Return of the Joker for the NES. Now, there also was a different version, different music for the Game Boy. Um, we have to talk about Naoki Kadaka, the primary composer for Sunsoft at this time, but we're going to play... Uh, this soundtrack was worked on by Naoki Kadaka, Nobuyuki Hara, and Shinichi Seiya, which was really a classic uh, kind of trifecta of Sunsoft music. And I think for the most part, Naoki Kadaka was the main composer. And I think Nubuyuki Hara and Shinichi Saya did a lot of implementation and, and kind of programming work, which, you know, maybe they're the kind of the unsung heroes of getting some of this amazing Sunsoft technical, impressive NES music to come to life. So it's definitely a successful collaborative team here. Let's play a track called Stage 3 Excavation Mine. <laughs> reminds me of Phantom of the Opera a little bit, but uh, we're taking a listen to Stage 3 Excavation Mine from the NES soundtrack to Batman Return of the Joker, which is a Sunsoft title composed by uh, primarily Naoki Kadaka, but a lot of help from Nubuyuki Hara and Shinichi Saya. What a cool track. It's funny that it reminds you of Phantom of the Opera, because I think Phantom of the Opera reminded a lot of people of, what was it, like Pink Floyd or something? There's mm-hmm. that one song, uh, Echoes or whatever, that yeah. it, people said it sounds like, but it's just a chromatic run. It's so You know what's silly. funny, Will? I thought you were going to say, you know, Phantom of the Opera reminded a lot of people of Batman Return of the Joker for the <laughs> NES. A lot of people were up in arms about that. Yeah. What came first? No, no. I... I you know, I love um, the two Batman games on NES because, to me, they really capture Batman. A lot of the music kind of reminds yeah. me of the, the Danny Elfman score to the films and just sort of the kind of darker spirit of Batman. I was just, I couldn't help but noticing some cool implementation tricks that they use in this track. For instance, at the beginning, the da, 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 how it fades. Mm-hmm. On the NES, when you really want to make a note kind of diminish that way, it doesn't really sound too good. You can kind of hear it too clearly. It'll never really disappear into nothingness like you want mm-hmm. it. But what's a nice effect is they couple that with an arpeggio at a constant volume. So it does sort of get lost in yeah. all that sound. But were it to be by itself, you might hear its flaws. So 
that was some sort of smart instrument pairing to create an effect that you couldn't really achieve on its own. And obviously we have that great sample base, um, which frees up another pitch so, channel. Yeah, I really think that some of that implementation stuff was um, really more of the work of the other two gentlemen. At least in this soundtrack, I'm pretty sure that was the well, case. Well, Carl, that brings up an interesting point, is collaboration doesn't just have to be musical, you know? I mean, yeah. we think of the easiest term of collaboration is I write this song, you write that song. But another type of collaboration is, like you said, you were mentioning it with the LucasArts guys where sort of A sections, B sections, musical ideas are all kind of paired together from different mm -hmm. people. But this is an example where maybe a song was written by one person, but it was implemented and sort of produced yeah. and created by another person. And that's something that we actually do have a lot of the time in 8 and 16-bit music. Even up to today, we still, yeah, we still have that. We have another modern yeah. example coming up. So now we're going to move to one of my favorite and I would say most classic collaborative teams. For the PC-88, we're talking about Yuzo Koshiro and Miko Ishikawa. We're going to play a track from Ease, Ancient Ease Vanish, the first game in this series. Really successful collaboration. Let's play a track called Crossroad of Sadness. Love this track. This is Crossroad of Sadness from Ancient Ease Vanished. That's the first Ease game for the PC-88 composed by Yuzo Koshiro and Miko Ishikawa as far as the whole soundtrack. Uh, this was definitely a Yuzo track, um, but really what a great uh, kind of dual composers to do this game because Yuzo's stuff is a lot more rocking and intense and Miko Ishikawa's stuff is, is a little bit more sophisticated and crafted and um, melodic and beautiful and I think the combination of those two really kind of covers all the bases but Will I want Wait, you to who share who would you say is more crafted and beautiful? Uh, Miko Ishikawa okay I agree um, but Will you were sharing something really kind of cute when, when you were listening to this do you want to talk about uh, what this piece kind of made you feel when, when yeah, you just started and, and, it today? And so cute yeah I, I am cute thank you for mentioning that no, <laughs> I, I changed I, my mind. Let's move on. <laughs> no, I, I was just saying that uh, it's kind of weird, but this actually makes me nostalgic because these East soundtracks um, we really kind of discovered in the early days of the podcast. So where some of this music, you know, I've been aware of for almost my whole life. So it's like nostalgic to the 90s. This is nostalgic yeah. to 2012, you're saying? Yeah, and it's interesting because it really it makes me think about, you know, how far we've come and that mm -hmm. now we're doing this podcast and a little bit different way but you know something i i really like uh do you know who composed this track carl uh yuzo kashiro yeah that's interesting to me because i i do feel like this has sort of a nice crafted melodic sound which just goes to show that when you're establishing a soundtrack i think composers have their own distinct sounds and 
just sort of things that are more important to them. Um, you know, for someone, rhythm might be more important. For another person, melody might be more important in the clarity of those elements. But when you're creating a cohesive soundtrack, oftentimes those elements will mix and match and you won't be able to define a composer just by that i love that b section it really reminds me of autumn leaves some of the yes. sort of the, the chord movements is the just jazz very classic changes. uh jazz yeah and call me crazy but if i'm not mistaken i have a memory that this was an unused piece of music i really think it's one of the best in the game though well you that in, that intro kind of the dun, 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 that also mm-hmm. reminds me of a little kind of riff in uh ghosts and goblins for the nes Ooh, very very but, yeah i know exactly what you mean well this is exciting folks it's now time to move on to our track of the week we're gonna play a track from a game that really we haven't played much music from on this which podcast. is so surprising because it's so good i know This is The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess, came out for the GameCube and the Wii, and this was a really successful collaboration. Um, You had a little bit, yeah, you had a little bit of um, kind of important um, themes by Koji Kondo, but for the most part, you know, doing a lot of the heavy lifting here, you had Toru Minigishi and Asuka Oda working really closely together uh, to try to make something that stands up. And this is an example where I don't know which tracks Koji wrote. There hasn't been a clear maybe now it's better but even in that uh you can get like a zelda book for piano where it spells Mm -hmm. things out but sometimes it actually miscredits people because if it's based on some arrangement from a game they might credit Mm -hmm. like toru minigishi or asuka oda when it's clearly koji kondo so some of that isn't completely accurate i have a feeling my opinion is that this is a toru minigishi track yeah that's what i think as well We're going to play a track called Kakariko Village, but have no fear, it's a new theme. It's not the same theme from other games. (laughs) But you'll be able to recognize a couple little nuggets of the original Kakariko Village. Cool. Here we go. Did you guys notice that really subtle, smart callback right there on the strings? You're listening to Kakariko Village from Twilight Princess, composed, we think, by Toru Minigishi, but Asuka Oda and Koji Kondo all worked on this soundtrack together. And yeah, Toru Minigishi, I think, is just a real 
Jim, he's someone that uh, in interviews he cited that his two biggest influences on his own music are Mazorsky's Pictures at Exhibition, which is a really cool work, mm-hmm. but then Koji Kondo. So I think it's really <laughs> cool to think that we have someone where there's this master and then the student who now, you know, now in most modern Zelda games, Toru Minigishi is working on a lot of them. And so yep. it's cool to think that, um, you know, he really respects Koji and he probably a lot like us grew up really loving his music and it's awesome to think that now he gets to work on yeah zelda it's games. so cool so what what a great track uh so cool we got to feature a twilight princess track for track of the yeah, week beautiful piece of music this this is uh one of my favorites from the game i remember vividly right. when my roommate mitch bought this game uh brought it back to the dorm room and i spent hours just watching him so i was very familiar with a lot of this score and this piece almost more than anything um well not more than anything but it's one of the pieces that really just kind of gives me a calm it reminds me of nature and of peace and just kind of serenity it's beautiful yeah it's really beautiful i i think that it is it was an interesting choice to not have the original kakariko village theme but I think this one fits this area much better because this is a game where uh, the village in Twilight Princess is slightly different than it has been in previous games. So I think this choice Mm -hmm. really gave it a more kind of earthy sensibility to it. And it's such a beautiful piece of music. I mean, his Koji Kondo influence is very identified. I mean, there's a lot of pieces in this game that I just... I can't believe um, that they're not Koji Kondo. And again, there's not perfect crediting. For example, that Ordon Village, I'm always going to say that that's that's Koji. I mean, it all makes the sense way. that would be it's one of the most important, one of the first yeah. things you hear. But, but I mean, Toro Minigishi, he's, he's got the chops too. Yeah. Um, Before so. we nerd out too much on Zelda, let's move on to another Nintendo soundtrack. And this is what I was talking about of a really cool example of there are some tracks. Uh, this is Kid Icarus Uprising, by the way. There are some tracks where a track would be composed by one person, but still worked on by other people as far as maybe recording it, implementing it. So that's still happening today. Uh, let's say all the composers, though, that worked on this, because that's what we're talking okay. about today, right? And this is a really cool kind of dream team. Yeah, this is amazing. Matoi Sakuraba who we're going to have a spotlight on, I believe, next week. Either ne- Yeah, I think next week or we're doing an episode, guys, on Matoi Sakuraba, which is a long time coming. We have... Nice plug. Yeah. <laughs> Yuzo Kashiro, Masafumi Takada, Noriyuki Awadere. Ooh, classic. Takahiro Nishi and... Oh, this little guy, Yasunori Matsuda. <laughs> a great addition. Let's play a track. Um, this is Chapter 1, That First Town, composed by Matoi Sakuraba. Here we go.
You guys are listening to Chapter 1, That First Town. We haven't played this track in our Kid Icarus episode. We played a different Chapter so 1 So surprising, because yeah. it's just beautiful. Very, very I good. love it. Kid Icarus Uprising is amazing. And like I said, guys, I really want people to buy and play this game. I mean, I know the project team already went under, mm-hmm. but this is one of the best Nintendo games in recent memory for me. It actually has a really clever script and a good story, and it was so nice having this really lyrical soundtrack that did a perfect job of creating new themes and having Mm -hmm. a sense of wonder, but also spending enough time to pay tribute to Hirokazu Tanaka and all the themes that he put forth. It was just... This, this soundtrack really couldn't have been done any better. Yeah, it's one of the best Nintendo soundtracks ever. Uh, what I think is, you know, behind the Galaxy series, I can't think of a better orchestral, fully orchestral Nintendo score. I mean, there is Star Fox Assault, which I'm a huge <laughs> yeah, fan of, which sort of does a similar thing. But this is just, it's also great having such a dream team I mean, of obviously, wonderful composers. You know, we have other things. You know, we have Skyward Sword. But to me, I mean, this is just so much more exciting musically than Skyward well, sort Sword. Sort of, yeah, like behind Zelda and Mario. Okay, so now, guys, we're going to move on to Kirby Superstar. Will mentioned the Kirby series before, and there's a lot of really good collaboration. Um, Johnny Shikawa is the primary composer, but Hirokazu Ando has been pretty heavily involved but i'm gonna play uh, a track from this game because this game was the only soundtrack in the series that was composed by um john ishikawa and dan miyakawa dan miyakawa this is the only entry in the series and i think this is an incredibly successful i feel like they're doppelganger twins of each other yeah this is <laughs> an incredibly successful collaboration arguably the best soundtrack in the series for me my favorite two soundtracks and that you guys know i've been seeping myself into kirby music lately for my project is kirby superstar and kirby's dreamland 3 you know, Carl, I, I have a question. Do you Would you say that Dan Miyakawa is to Jun Ishikawa how Wario is to Mario? I like would say that. Like I would say that. I do know that his way. mustache is exactly the same. I know for a fact. Right. No, that, that, that's just why I yeah. thought that. And he also talks the same. He, he sounds like this. Dan Miyakawa. But anyway, uh, oh man, I hope that's true. I've never met Dan. That would be so cool. But yeah, no, <laughs> Kirby Superstar so good. Um. Yeah, for me, for my album, Kirby's Dream on 3 is the main source of inspiration compositionally, but Kirby Superstar is is pretty heavy in there as well. I love it. We're going to play a really cool track called Meta Knight Defeated. a masterful transition to get back into the loop again oh my gosh such sophisticated writing here more than you usually hear in the kirby series to be brutally honest this is a track that doesn't inherently sound like kirby one thing though that a lot of people forget especially in soundtracks like kirby superstar and kirby's dream on three 
a lot of really kind of sophisticated jazz chord changes. Not every track is like really kind of simple. You know, there's a lot of subtlety in these two soundtracks. Is that kind of what you're trying to to prove in your <laughs> album? Um, it's almost like you're fighting discrimination in a way. <laughs> in some ways, not really. I mean, most of my tracks so far have been very kind of overt in classic Kirby. Oh, so you're part of the problem, not the solution. <laughs> no, I do have a couple, and I plan to at least have at least one more that I'll write that is going to try to evoke a little bit more of the jazz influence because it's pretty Good. important. But yeah, what are your thoughts on this track, Will? I really love it. I mean, it has sort of an Ennio Morcone ah. uh, Western kind of sound to me, just with that trumpet and almost kind of how uh, it's a little bit like Roboto with its rhythmic performance. Yes, um, which is really cool to have on the Super Nintendo because mm-hmm. again, that's not easy to do when you're inputting it and not getting like a MIDI performance thing. Um, but yeah, this just this doesn't sound like. Kirby at all, mm-hmm. and I think that's what's so cool about it. Or, and rather, it doesn't sound like what your impression of yes. Kirby music is, which shows that all sort of the moves in these soundtracks are very intentional and kind of calculated. And that's why there usually is sort of a tongue-in-cheek quality with Kirby's music, where it feels like the composers are like, yeah, we're just going to do something like this. Like, mm-hmm. it's just going to be like a fun thing. But not sort of like, this is sort of the the limits, or like, this is the bounds of their composition. And style. what's interesting to me is, I, obviously I don't know this, I'm completely speculating uh, but this did mark a turning point compositionally in the Kirby series because this introduced so much jazz influence, which um, Johnny Shikawa, because he he did Dreamland 3 by himself, really continued. So what if Dan Miyakawa was the one who introduced a lot of the jazz influence and then John decided to carry that torch? Who's to say? Yeah, it's possible. Who's to say? So now, guys, we're going to move on to Mega Man 9, uh, a really successful collaboration, really kind of sparked a new era of these cool retro throws backs um and i gotta say this is out of all of them um well really until something like shovel knight yeah i think this is sort of the benchmark of this is a soundtrack that's as good yeah. as anything in it, the it's 80s so or good 90s. it's better than a lot of nes mega man scores we're gonna play um a track called hornet dance hornet man stage the soundtrack was composed by ipo yamada yushimoda ryo kawakami and hiroki isagai here we go to Hornet Dance from Mega Man 9. Well, this track is just fantastic, but it's actually time for one of our favorite little segments in the show. Um, it's time again for another Marty's Corner. Take it away, ma'am. Hi, guys. Today I want to talk about a game soundtrack that illustrates a really unique collaboration. Although, we tend not to think of it that way. In fact, sometimes we don't even treat this title as its own game. I'm talking about Super Mario All-Stars for the Super Nintendo. 
It was practically a ubiquitous SNES cartridge in the 90s, but it's easy to forget what an exciting release this was for the time. Not just a game within a game, but a library of some of the most beloved and popular games of all time within a single game. All Stars is designed as a consistent and unified experience. It really sold a continuity in the Mario games that honestly wasn't always there in their original form. And it also helped to bridge a graphical and sound gap between the NES titles and the flagship SNES Mario game, Super Mario World. But updating the graphics and sound wasn't merely a creative choice, it was a necessary one. They had to build sprites and sequence sound from scratch for the new console. Responsible for overseeing the sound and music for the game was Soyo Oka, herself a staff Nintendo composer fresh off of the soundtrack to Super Mario Kart. Nintendo would have been hard-pressed to find a better candidate for the job. Not only was Oka an accomplished composer on the rise, but she'd worked with Koji Kondo previously on Pilot Wings. Or believe it or not, she was the composer and he implemented the sound. And before that, she'd composed the sequel to his game, Shin Onigashima. That being said, reactions to her arrangement of Koji Kondo's original music in All-Stars tend to be mixed. She does take some harmonic and rhythmic liberties with the main overworld theme, which I think is really most of the source of any criticism. It's possibly the least faithful of any of the arrangements, which wasn't going to go unnoticed. A selling point of All-Stars, though, was noticeably updated graphics and sound. There was likely a pretty strong directive placed on her by Nintendo to go big with the overworld arrangement. At any rate, any mixed reaction to her work is a real shame, because for the most part, her arrangements are both painstakingly faithful and quite tasteful. Above all, though, I think her work on All-Stars is incredible because of how she seamlessly inserted herself as a composer. This aspect of her work on the game gets easily overlooked. Arranging what was even then classic music was one thing, but writing new music to sit alongside that was an incredibly tall order, and in some ways a no-win situation. If she fell short of the material, it'd surely be noticed and criticized. And if she succeeded to seamlessly add new music, well, if it was so well integrated, you could assume it always existed in the game. I think that's exactly what happened in All-Stars. For anyone who grew up on this version of the first Super Mario game, this bonus theme is just as indelible as Starman or the castle music, and her opening title select theme is so strong, so Koji Kondo, you could easily believe it's always been a part of Mario. In fact, it's nearly impossible to imagine it in any other franchise. Even this reinterpretation of the overworld theme for the game select menu is not just inspired, but it also would feel right at home in the musical landscape of Mario Bros. 3 or Super Mario World. Now, most of the original music is featured in Super Mario Bros. 1, and then is essentially repeated for the lost levels. The game has new boss music. Now, at first blush, this theme feels a bit anachronistic, and more like traditional video game boss music. But let's take a look at what she had to reference at the time. There was no boss music in Mario 1, or lost levels. And Mario 2 was essentially a repurposed soundtrack from Doki Doki Panic. Now, the boss music in Super Mario Bros. 3 sounds... Well, similarly unexpected. And again, more in step with traditional video game boss themes. And Super Mario World continues the tradition. Set alongside these boss themes, Oka's is in keeping with the style, and it's a great piece of music. I'd argue, too, that her arrangement choices take cues from Koji Kondo wherever possible. Her use of the SNES chip follows closely in the footsteps of Super Mario World. 
Yet it's done with real effort. It's not copy and paste. There's no reused SNES music at all, even though there are relevant sound files that would have been available to her. Koji himself made an overworld remix in Super Mario World. Whether she and Kondo-san spoke at length, or she had only her tastes and instincts to follow, we don't really know. But any way you look at it, All Stars as a soundtrack is a unique collaborative effort. It's a collaboration between a young composer in the 80s who found himself at the musical center of a global phenomenon, and another young composer in the 90s who had to take up that mantle, present it at its best, and add to it without drawing any attention to herself. By any measure I can concoct, she succeeded with flying colors. We may not give it a second thought, but thanks to her hard work and good taste, Soya Oka's all-star soundtrack is a model of both how to present a musical retrospective and how to tastefully expand on it. Her work here is an inspiration for collaborating not only across the aisle, but across time. Thanks for listening, folks. Until next time, bye-bye. Awesome. Thanks again, Marty, for another installment of Marty's Corner. We love uh, having those segments on the podcast. It really spices it up. Thanks, man. We appreciate that. So let's get back into it. We have about five more tracks to talk about today. Another um, few more really classic collaborative teams here. Uh, This is a really cool one. We're going to play a track from Mother for the NES. And this collaboration um, was Kichi Suzuki and Hirokazu Tanaka. And we're going to play a track called All That I Needed parentheses was you and it really sounds like a a pop song this is a track that it doesn't really sound like video game music uh some really quirky and odd chord changes but it's kind of an earworm uh i I think this is uh, a pretty popular track in this soundtrack so i think that's how i would describe uh mother and earthbound and sort of the humor of those soundtracks in general is it is kind of quirky and odd so i feel like the music definitely matches that cool well let's take a listen to all that i needed was you from mother What a unique piece of music there. You guys are listening to All That I Needed Was You. From Mother, composed by Kichi Suzuki and Hirokazu Hip Tanaka. Now, Will, you're the big Hip Tanaka, um, I don't want to say, yeah, I guess I would say super fan. You love Hip Tanaka's work. Obviously, you just finished a project which um, really was inspired by, at least for the first half, um, kind of third of it, his music. Do you think this is a Hip Tanaka composition or not? 
I mean, there's no way to tell because none of the Mother Earthbound music distinctively has his quirks, but I think that's something that he sort of uh, tries to be a little bit hyper aware of is to avoid having a style, even though I feel like for a lot of his classic soundtracks, we are all like, oh gosh, it totally sounds like him. But I, I've seen and kind of read in interviews where he like, I don't really have a style, I just try to match yeah. um the game so it really wouldn't surprise me either way something Mm -hmm. that i found interesting there's that i think it's like really the third chord when the melody comes in that kind of strange one uh, that gave you that feeling and what the first time i listened to it i felt like huh that's odd but it wasn't until the second time i listened to it you understood where you kind of came around to it because they were trying to evoke sort of a more jazzy change Mm -hmm. than you can really have on the nes due to the nature of the three voice limitations. Right. So there wasn't really like voice leading into it. And especially it was establishing this kind of rock thing with like power chords almost. So that was very kind of jarring, but it actually due to the nature of how game music loops, I think it's something you're able to forgive and it allows you to kind of go through a little bit more interesting of a harmonic journey mm-hmm. because now we're exploring some of these jazzier chords. Well, well, this was kind of a, a very tricky order of the playlist for me. We're moving from, Mother to Super Metroid. Obviously, you know, Hirokazu Tanaka did the first Metroid game. This is Super Metroid. And this is one of um, definitely the most successful collaborations I can think of. Not just this game, but these two composers uh, continue to work together today, even. The way that they collaborate is something that was hugely uh, influential for me for Child of the Chozo, which I just released last week. Um, Yeah, guys, you should download that for sure. It's uh, incredible. It's a really... Uh, I don't know. It's an achievement. You guys should definitely check that out. We're talking about Kenji Yamamoto in Minako Hamano, by the way. Oh, well, thanks, Ben. That that really means a, a lot to me. But I, I love the way they, they work together and the sound that they really established in this game. And it carries on in solo Kenji Yamamoto soundtracks. Mm-hmm. It has the spirit of Super Metroid. And in soundtracks that Kenji didn't work on, but Minako Hamano did, like Metroid Fusion, it, this spirit carries on. So I was really interested to see what they did and how they evoked this soundtrack that was both ambient, catchy, melodic, uplifting, and scary at times. It really... Um, they're very versatile. And so uh, this track in particular means a lot to me, and I'm surprised we haven't played it because it's a classic. So Yeah, let's take a listen to uh, Meridia Rocky Underwater Area. This is so beautiful. We're listening to Meridia Rocky Underwater Area from Super Metroid. This track was composed by Minako Hamano because it actually indicates who wrote what 
on the SPC file, Man. but it's just something that so impressed me is I think when I was younger, um, since Kenji is sort of credited as the primary composer, I just assumed, oh, like all the great themes are him and Monaco Hamano may have done some incidental music. She but did some really important themes. It yeah. really does feel more like a even split. And she did some of the best themes that still remain to the game for this day. Yeah, who would have known? Uh, I did, was not aware until until you kind of did more research on that, that Monaco Hamano was responsible for some of the most, um, I don't know, well-loved themes of this game and the you know the ridley theme ones that are just used in countless entries in the series it was so yeah. important you know this collaboration was so successful well, and the other thing that i've learned is some of the more beautiful ambient moments on the soundtrack mm -hmm. are really owed to monaco hamano where i feel like some of the more rocking moments yeah. are owed to kenji yamamoto but again even that statement is inaccurate because for example that ridley boss theme which is one of the most classic pieces in all of metroid yeah that's Monaco Hamano as well. So I think that's what's so cool, though, is this is an example of two composers. They had a dialogue. They established what they wanted to do. And another thing that's nice is neither one of them had worked on Metroid before. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like someone had to live up to this veteran. <laughs> yeah, they got to make their own soundtrack together. And I'm pretty sure that that Monaco Hamano was like super green when she did this. This is one of her first, maybe her first game, if I'm not mistaken. She was incredibly yeah, that, new I, to, I had uh, read that this was her first game to the industry. But um, yeah, no, that that Ridley theme is one of the probably the top five boss themes ever. I would say, such a great theme, yeah, such great composers great. working together. We're now going to move on to Ogre Battle '64. This was a really cool collaboration. We have some great composers here, most notably Hitoshi Sakimoto. We also have Masaharu Awada and Hayaro Matsuo. Let's take a listen to a really nice, uh, this kind of reminds me a little bit of film score. It's really uh, melodic and fun. Let's take a listen to Revolt from Ogre Battle 64. great melody you're listening to revolt from ogre battle 64 composed by hitoshi masaharu and hayato just first name basis here <laughs> um this is revolt and what i love about this song and the soundtrack is it's a fully orchestral n64 soundtrack we don't get that on this system and it's really good composition you have a lot of really kind of subtle beautiful pieces you have some dissonant ones with tension you have ones like this that are just melodic reminds me of Star Fox. Some right. Super Metroid Will was saying. Well, but, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I just I can't just let them the get away. I can't let them get away with that. Da, da da da. Like, I mean, that's kind of right. owned by. Yeah, Super but I mean, Metroid. can you think of another N64 soundtrack that has this many tracks that are all orchestral? 
No, yeah, and, like, that, orchestrated. That's, that's what I love. Well. And I, I mean, you can think of some examples. Star Fox is a great one. I think that's why it is reminiscent. Not a lot of tracks, but Really, though. it's like you think about like some of the rare games, and they do have orchestral stuff, but it's never completely in earnest like this. It's usually a little bit tongue-in-cheek or going for a goofier sound. And even, to be honest, you know, Star Fox, when you think about the number of voices, it's like a, maybe like a chamber group you might consider that, whereas this, there's so many things happening. It feels fully orchestral. Yeah, you know? it's cool. Um, so yeah, now we're going to move on to, again, it'd be a disservice if we didn't include a Fallen Brothers track. You know, this was actually the first game they ever worked on collaboratively. Wait a minute, Tim can Fallen, brothers work on music together? Is that It is, is illegal in some states. Tim, It just doesn't seem fair. Yeah, Tim Fallen, you know, I, I agree. It's, it's, it's unfair in some ways. Tim Fallen worked uh, definitely before and after they worked together. He um, was obviously a little bit more active, done a lot more games. Jeff did some before, but this was the first one they did together. And the Fallen Brothers, really, they did the best music when they worked together. This is Silver Surfer for the NES. Let's take a listen to the title screen. What a Fallen-esque track. This is title screen from Silver Surfer by the Fallen Brothers. That is Tim and Jeff Fallen. Their first collaborative soundtrack. Um, this is really when they did the best music is when they worked together. Plock was another great collaborative soundtrack. So many great ones. Um, I love this intro. This is some of the most um, advanced implementation I've ever heard on the NES. Yeah, I mean, this, this soundtrack is so classic. If you're a fan of our show then you will have heard every great piece from this game because Absolutely. it's just so incredibly exciting and novel in the world of 8-bit music. And I think that their two individual, Tim especially, because I feel like he probably did a lot of the implementation, mm-hmm. so responsible for anyone who writes modern chiptunes and tries to push the boundaries Absolutely. of these 8-bit consoles. They really owe a lot to pioneering techniques that the Fallens use. So, I mean, yeah, we've, we've already talked into the ground this entire soundtrack and what makes it great. So I advise so, you to go back to our Fallen Brothers episode if you want to learn more about them. Throwback Thursday, throwback Monday today. <laughs> um, Uncharted 3 is now what we're going to end today's episode uh, with. Uncharted 3 uh, composed, this is a really cool collaboration, composed by Greg Edmondson, Azam Ali, 
And Clint Bajakian. He is always part of collaborative dream teams. He's always <laughs> popping in. He's almost almost exclusively a collaborative composer. He must have a reputation for working well together. Well, he did do um, uh, out. What was it? Out, out Outlaws Law? by himself. Yeah. He's, no, he's done some stuff. Let's play a track called Atlantis of the Sands. Uh, this features a theme. It's a different tr- version of a theme that you guys will recognize from our Sand episode. This is from Uncharted 3. Let's take a listen. you guys so much for joining us on our episode spotlighting some of the greatest collaborations in video game music from the nes all the way to the ps4 we had a great time and uh, we hope you guys did as well like we said next week we have a really cool episode focusing on the legendary matoy sakuraba that's going to be great i wanted to make a quick shout out that the track we're playing out with today is from f-zero maximum velocity just a phenomenal which, soundtrack great soundtrack but i didn't realize this here are the composers we have we have masaro tajima mitsutaro furikawa and naoto ashida one of the oh, wow. original f-zero composers didn't know that so that's a really cool thing but yeah thanks guys for joining us yeah, thanks again to Marty um, for having another Marty's Corner. Uh, yes. Again, if you're new to the show, you can look forward to those. About once a month, we try to do those, and we just we really love having it. So thanks again, Marty, it's a great for addition, all the time yeah. that you put into the research and yeah, and uh, of those. I just want to go ahead and just do the plugs here. Guys, you got to download Child of the Chozo uh, by Will. It was released last week. Um, just... Really, uh, both me and Marty were, were very close to this project, and every single track that was finished, uh, we would hear right away, and uh, just the amount of time spent picking synth sounds for the Prime tracks uh, is just, I don't know, it, it was just a really behemoth project, so you guys should definitely check that out. My Kirby album is going really well. I have about nine tracks done already, wow. so I'm just kind of uh, really kind of chugging along. I look forward to releasing that, but yeah, uh, we look forward to doing some more cool episodes uh, in the near future. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm his brother, Will Brueggemann. Have a great week, everybody. Peace out. Peace <laughs> out.